Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of State of the Art. I'm your host, Andrew Herman. And if this is your first time here, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing. We're talking about art technology and the intersection between them. But mostly, we want to talk about why you should care about this stuff. I've been on both sides of this coin as a startup founder, an engineer, a creative, and I'm just fascinated by the world where art and technology overlap. So I'll be talking to artists, collectors, CEOs, and founders, anybody who has any perspective on this world I want to talk to. This week, we have uh, a really accomplished artist. She just got done with a viewing in Times Square, of all places, uh, that you'll hear about. She's been a teacher at Pratt for a while. Um, and I, really, I think why I enjoy Carla so much is she just has a lot of words of wisdom from her teaching to her prolificness and success as, an, as a working artist. Um, I think, you know, if there's working artists listening right now, um, you're going to get a lot out of this interview. And uh, if you're not a working artist, then you're going to get introduced to some really interesting digital artwork and hear about Carla's journey from a uh, small town in the south to to the big apple and uh and and her transition from traditional art into digital art so i think you're really gonna enjoy it please welcome carla gannis thank you listeners for tuning in to another week i had some time off i was uh i was at my wedding and my honeymoon but it's great to be back in the seat in front of the microphone and uh we have a really cool guest for you this week carla gannis um, Carla, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the program and thanks for being on State of the Art. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Great to be here. Awesome. Or to virtually be here. <laughs> right, 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 right. From yeah. coast to coast, right? right? Um, yeah. So, uh, so just so you know, the listeners know you're, um, you're a teacher, you teach at Pratt, um, you're a working artist. You've done some really cool exhibitions and screenings recently. Um, you were doing the midnight moment thing in Times Square in New York. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Um, yeah. and you're, you're staying really active as a working artist. But, um, before we kind of get to all that interesting stuff, I'm really curious. You, you talk about coming up from a small town and having Appalachian grandparents and their influence on your life and sort of your creative journey. Um, can you kind of talk about how that how that shaped your path early in life? Sure. When I was growing up, I my parents moved around a bit until I was about nine years old. And we settled in this small town in North Carolina. But we were always in the South. All of my family is from the South. But I have always identified strongly with my mother's side of the family. And they're from the Appalachian Mountains. And when I was eight and a half, my grandparents decided to move in with us, uh, where we were growing up, I say my family, we were all growing up in this small town um, in the center part of North Carolina. And there's something very unique about Appalachian culture, particularly my grandfather was a craftsperson and he made musical instruments. He made dulcimers and violins huh. and banjos. And uh, his violin, he called a fiddle. He was always working and he had a model of a Stradivarius. So that kind of practice huh. and that love of craft, I think really influenced me. Equally so was the storytelling. We'd go up to the family homestead in uh, above Boone, North Carolina and Sugar Grove. 
quite often throughout the year. And I'd get to hear a lot of tall tales and stories. And also mountain ballads were a big thing that my grandma Pansy Mae would sing. And so <laughs> that sense of storytelling uh, was was really formative for me. And I think it is still infused in my work. I think that I describe it as growing up in the South, there was a definite Southern Gothic influence to me on me and also, you know, the Appalachian identity. And then I moved to New York and I switched or transitioned from being a painter to working with digital media and new media. And so my stories have kind of changed along the way. And there are a lot more about network culture. But I think that core identification with storytelling has been pervasive throughout my life. And a lot of that is due to my grandparents. Hmm. And yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I, it's such a cool story that just resonates with me. I, I grew up in the foothills of Western Pennsylvania, so yeah, you know, it's a little bit different than the Southern Appalachian culture for sure. Yeah. But but definitely resonate with that. I, I'm curious because you know the art world really is um, is in big cities, right? You kind of have to be in yeah. big cities to to be able to have a career. But do you ever do you feel like coming out of that small town culture kind of put a chip on your shoulder to succeed in a bigger place? It certainly did. And my partner now will sometimes, you know, touch my shoulder, tap my shoulder. <laughs> and it's like because they, I still have it sometimes, you know, there's this sense of diligence and really having to work hard. I made a model of New York City when I was in third grade. My grandfather helped me because he was a craftsperson. So he helped me, you know, with the buildings. He like used his bandsaw and all of these things to help me make buildings that then I painted. So, you know, I was thinking about these things. I was really interested in the arts from an early age. Both of my parents had wanted to be artists, but socioeconomically that wasn't possible for Mm. us. Mm. And, and thanks to my parents, you know, and, and, and my grandparents, you know, because they always encouraged me to be creative. Here I am. Yeah. Uh, but, but that is funny. Yes. I will sometimes still be like rubbing my shoulder. <laughs> yep. That chip. Yep. Get that dirt <laughs> off your shoulder. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. But there's a, I mean, there is a very real sense of, you know, that's one of the things that, um, that I really enjoyed about talking to you in our first phone call and just doing research. I mean, that's kind of a repeated theme for you that like when push comes to shove, you kind of just got to work hard. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's, I, I think, I, I think because I'm from a small town that, that that's something you grow up with when you come out of that culture. So, um, it, it feels very much a part of you just from talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's not like I'm, I think every person is born into a different situation and it's what you do with that situation. So in no way do I want to denigrate anyone who was born in New York and, and, and they kind of had access to things before I did. Right. That's their journey. It's just my, and, and, and I want to be very careful about, you know, making sure I state that, but my, my journey has been, and it seems similar to yours, you know, kind of that struggle to get to, you know, an epicenter yeah. and, 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 and to make stuff and, yeah. and to share it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that spirit. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm curious, I mean, another thing, again, having also come out of a small town, I know that, 
um, at least my path was people were not really thinking about computer culture and the digital age and stuff like that. So, so I'm curious, I mean, I know your background is in fine art and traditional art. So what was that transition like between sort of the fine art world and walking that path into the, the cold, icy waters of digital art? Well, I, I like that you describe it as cold, icy waters, particularly <laughs> because a lot of my work uh, has dealt with identity and and sexuality and a lot of those things. And um, I think when I first began making work with digital tools, that might have been kind of new ground. You know, there mm. were definitely people before me, pioneers like Lynn Hirschman Leeson, who were already doing that in a uh, new media genre. But I also have to say I was very fortunate. I grew up in this really small town, but my dad, who is a complete autodidact, he started out in electronics, he never finished college, um, became really interested in computers early on, early on saying, you know, talking about the 80s. Hmm. And, And I, you know, had these ambitions. I wanted to be a serious artist. So in high school, you know, I was studying painting and classical piano. I actually taught piano when I was in high school. I, you know, I, I really applied myself to things, but my dad (laughs) was studying computers and he was bringing things home that nobody else in my town knew anything about. (laughs) And he took me to, um, a conference. It was called SIGGRAPH and which I'm sure you're familiar with, right? And this is like 86, you know? And so this is kind of really early on. And it's really funny that I, I describe it as a reverse generation gap because my dad was like really cool and telling me this was the future of art. <laughs> but, and I was so persistent in believing in painting as this, you know, kind of ultimate form. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and by the way, for listeners who might not know, SIGGRAPH is um, for, for the uh, digital, uh, digital, uh, what's, what's the world word I'm looking for um, for the graphics community is like, uh-huh the place to be it's it, like that's where pixar kind of launched their stuff and yeah. anybody who's anybody in sort of the computer graphics world um that's their that's their woodstock so that's uh, it <laughs> clearly <laughs> as nerdy as that sounds but but to be there in the 80s i mean that's when huge stuff was happening in that world so that would have been a very influential time to be there so yeah so you were so was that sort of the beginning of informing your digital artwork, do you think? Well, my dad likes to take credit for that, <laughs> you know? and, and And I think it's it may be because I'm from the South, and I think still in the South, there is a lot of identification still with your family. So my mother, yeah. who never was able to pursue her ambitions to be an artist, would pick me up from school every day in a different wig. And she used to model as a share and look alike. And she was very performative. I think that definitely has influenced my work. I think my dad introducing me to computer graphics at an early age influenced my work. I think I was resistant to both of them, like children often are, Yeah. when I was younger. And so I pursued music and fine art painting and, and classical piano for undergrad. And then I also went on to grad school. And the first person in my family to finish four-year college or go to grad school. Congratulations. Yeah, you know, whatever. (laughs) But that was, you know, that was a thing. And because education I saw as my way out. And I also 
teaching, you know, I taught piano when I was in high school. I think teaching also was something that I felt like in getting these degrees, that would be a career path that would be open to me. And so it wasn't until I moved to New York City, though, that I think something kind of clicked when I was exposed to so many what I would describe as or who I would describe as as fine artists who were working with new tools. Hmm. And I realized that, you know, those lessons from my childhood, you know, those things my dad had shared with me were resonating. And, and it was now starting to kind of blossom as hmm. a possibility for me as an artist. Yeah. yeah. So when did you... Uh, for listeners of the program, they know that I say all the time that I'm more on the technical side than the create. I, I like to think of myself as a creative person, but I'm certainly not an artist. Yeah. But I am an engineer, yeah. and I I know you know dealing with or talking to a lot of digital artists, you have to have some very serious technical chops to do well as well. So, at what point did you um did you start to sort of assimilate that knowledge, or or had you kept technical chops kind of along the way? Well, fortunately, I, I wasn't highly technical in grad school, but I wanted to get to New York. And my dad, thankfully, had sent me a computer because back then, you know, I mean, as a, a student, I was paying my way through grad school, working at libraries and teaching aerobics classes and waiting yeah. tables, you know. And <laughs> so um, I received this computer from my dad and he was tech support for me for quite some time. And then my first job in New York was databasing a library. It was the John McEnroe, John McEnroe library at the New York studio school and a, a small painting school, but I had to learn how to database and I had to put this all mm. together and I got on the internet and I was going on the library of Congress and figuring out the library of Congress system and, and how to build this. And, and so computing is what got me to New York. You yeah. know, and I wasn't applying it to my art at that time, but I soon realized that there were other applications that I could use in a creative. And so I had to go through this ritual of destroying all my paintings. It seemed like that that was necessary for me at the time. Huh. Impetuous youth, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I threw away all the paintings I'd made. That's a paint oil is very expensive. So when I think about that now, I'm like, Wow. <laughs> I had to go through that. And I, you know, went through a phase I was working with <laughs> back then. So this is the, the, the mid to late 90s. I was going to copy shops and I was doing Xerox art and photography and video. And then the other thing I realized was I couldn't afford in New York on my income to keep the big painting studio. Hmm. And that with a computer, I could build worlds. And there was kind of an infinite space for me. Huh. And that was really exciting to me, too, in terms of maintaining my practice, because, of course, I had all of these different day jobs. And so, you know, the computer was an infinite space where I could continue to make work, hmm. you know, when I came in from work every night. And um, so that was something else that was really revelatory to me, because at the time I was looking at also artists who wouldn't be considered digital artists, but I was looking at artists like Gregory Crutzen, who was a photographer, and he would build these massive kind of film sets with a film crew just for a still photograph or someone like Matthew Barney, who was making these million dollar budget films. And I knew I didn't have that money or funding. And I was like, I can create those kind of worlds, but do it in my computer. Yeah. And so... Back then, 
there weren't the internet resources there are today. So I was reading a lot of manuals. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing that was really helpful to me is I taught myself back then it was also HTML flash and I built some websites just on my own and I got a job, a day job doing web design. Hmm. And there was no way I could reconcile working 40 hours a week using these technologies and not applying them to my own art. Right. It's like that kind of, you know, art and life. Yeah. Uh, together. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, uh, just listening to you talk, it's a very interesting story that, you know, one of the, one of the things that artists are best with is operating under constraints and finding new ways to use tools. You know, artists are tend to be the really push the limits. Like, you know, like they say that the video game industry really is pushing technology forward because it's a lot of creative people who are trying to find what the limit of that technology is capable of. Um, and, yeah. and so it's cool to hear it. it sounds like even coming out of the traditional art world, you really just made the most out of what was available to you at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that resourceful resourcefulness is really, really essential. And I think artists, I remember someone, I think it was a gallerist years ago who likened artists to cockroaches. We just have this ability to survive. <laughs> we can survive. That's you know? hilarious. Well, and it's, <laughs> it's funny because it tends to be that, you know, it's not even like a, a cognition. Like it's not, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong with your journey, but you know, a lot of times it's not, you realize in retrospect that there was a reason to how you kind of got on that path. But at the time you just, if there's something available to you, you, you pick it up and you use it and you play with it and either it sort of catches your imagination or it doesn't and you move on to the next thing, you know? Yeah. 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 And I, I think I was also thinking about just being an artist of my time. I'm still, mm. if you look at my work, really influenced by art history. Um, for me, it's it's more Western art history. And, and that's something I think, you know, in, in which has to do with, you know, where I come from. But but looking at art history and, and thinking about it contextually. And so these polymaths from the Renaissance, were they to be alive today? I yeah. am sure they would be working with digital technologies. Yeah. They would be working with the materials of our time. And so that was something else that I was conscious of when I moved from painting to trying to work with, you know, new tools and and technologies. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a great transition because clearly your accomplishments speak for themselves and you, Mm -hmm. that you are an artist of our time. Um, you just finished up uh, a month-long screening in Times Square. Can you tell me about that? Oh, this was really a fantastic opportunity. So for the past 31 days, so from August 1st to August 31st, my videos, it was actually a single channel video that took over all of the different advertising screens in Times Square for three minutes every night. Hmm. So from 11.57 to 12 midnight, millions of ad revenue (laughs) (laughs) is sacrificed for artwork. And it's part of a program that was launched by the Times Square Arts. I think they're just called Times Square Arts and in collaboration with the Times Square Alliance. And they've been doing this for several years. And so I submitted work and fortunately my work was accepted and it was just 
thrilling because it's a really kind of populist, uh, you know, opportunity. People from all over the world are in Times Square. I don't often travel to Times Square. I've been living in New York for about 23 years, but I don't get up there often. I'm usually in Brooklyn. New Yorkers tend to stay out of there, but sorry. (laughs) It is so true. And I can convince so many friends to come to Times Square to see this thing. And so every time I'd get a big group of people, we did weefies. You know, because everyone's taking selfies and Times Square. And actually, my, my work is about these kind of strange portraits, animated portraits of people taking selfies. And um, so I'd get these massive groups of New Yorkers and artists up to Times Square and I'd make sure we take a wifi while we were there, you know, because that was kind of important, you know, yeah. to, to lay claim to, oh, yeah, this is a completely different context than, you know, the white cube. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about the, the actual videos, the work itself. Okay. So the videos, there are two characters in the videos and it's titled portraits and landscape. And I was mentioning earlier my love of art history. So I tend to find influences in more kind of eccentric art historical figures. So these works were influenced by the mannerist painter Archimbaldo, who you're probably familiar with, who made portraits of people comprised of vegetables or fruits or books or all of these different amalgamations. Right. And from a, and from a distance, you recognize it as human, but it's an uncanny valley experience. <laughs> I feel like that, you know, which seems topical today. So my portraits, taking a cue from Archimbaldo, are also a symbol from a collection of things, but the collections of things are emoji, the (laughs) language that we use, which is, isn't an art language. This is just, again, you know, a populist, uh, source. It is what we all use, or when I say all, many of us, it's it's pretty ubiquitous. My mother uses more emoji than I do (laughs) in our text. Yep. Um, you know, and it has become, you know, a common vernacular Yeah. and, and vernacular is kind of interesting to me too, you know? Hmm. And, um, Yeah. And so, you know, putting together and making these portraits. And and the other thing is these portraits started as just, uh, um, you know, 3D models. So they're not homages to any wealthy patron either. You know, (laughs) so there's something kind of very universal about that, too. And the fact that, you know, many of us express ourselves today through these kind of digital avatars. Yeah. And then. There's this teeming emojified, which is probably not an adjective, but I like to use it, (laughs) landscape behind the portraits because I really wanted to create something kind of sensational, thinking of the context of Times Square, thinking Mm. of how hypermediated it is. I wanted to create something where the pace and tempo is much slower than a lot of the videos playing in Times Square, but the actual visuals, I think, hold their own in Mm. that context. Yeah. Interesting. It's funny comparing it, it comparing uh, or, you know, the, the analogy to the Archimbaldo paintings, I, I, it like makes me wonder if back in his time, people were like throwing potatoes and carrots at each other as emojis. Like that's how they were getting their <laughs> message across. Like there's just a carrot that comes flying through your window. And you're like, hey, Steve, good to see you today. <laughs> <laughs> 
Wouldn't that be fabulous if that were the case? Yeah. yeah. I love it. Uh, yeah. Well, congratulations. I mean, that's that's a huge accomplishment. And uh, I, I mean, I don't know what to say. It's it, it's uh, the the work is really, really cool. And it's it's on your website, right? I'm pretty sure I've seen it. it. Yeah. 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 So we'll throw your website in the show notes for listeners to check out. Um, it really is uh, to envision it in Times Square. It, it oddly fits. You know, it's a bit of a <laughs> surreal experience to watch it, but it definitely kind of fits the the atmosphere of Times Square. Um, so, and then the the other work that that you were telling me about that I think is really interesting was for the Whitney site. Can you tell mm-hmm. me a little about uh, about that work? Yeah, so that piece is entitled "Lady Ava Interface," and again. There is the homage or the reference to Archibaldo in the way that I have composited all of these emoji um, to create this kind of humanoid form. But I'm also referencing the first programmer, Lady Ada Lovelace, uh, who worked with Charles Babbage in the 1850s, 60s on the analytic engine. And so Lady Ava interface were, uh, acts as a kind of assistant on the Whitney site. So at sunrise and sunset every day, you can go to the Whitney and my avatar or my AI agent greets you on any page of the Whitney site only for 30 seconds. But instead of offering you kind of quotidian advice or, or, or just the things that normally you know, our disembodied AI uh, agents, or not agents, but our helpers uh, provide us with where it's like, this is your schedule. This is what you need to get to. She is a more poetic instantiation. So they, she kind of holds something up. I wasn't able to use audio for this piece. And, and she gives different kind of prompts and directives that are much more kind of poetic and, and just kind of leads you in a, in a different uh, or, or put you in a, I hope, a different state of mind. And I was particularly thinking about that because sunrise is when someone is beginning their day. So mm. there are particular prompts for beginning your day. And then sunset, again, you know, it's this kind of conclusion. And I'm, I might add that it's been really funny that this year I have been commissioned with a sunrise and sunset project, a midnight project. So now I'm just waiting for the lunchtime project. <laughs> so if if there's any uh benefactors out there who are <laughs> interested in hiring Carla for uh an afternoon project that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hopefully I don't know if we have those kinds of listeners but hopefully we do. <laughs> um so Again, I mean, congratulations. Your body of work is um, so cool and you definitely deserve to be getting those kinds of gigs. I'm curious, as someone who is um, who really is being successful in the digital art world, um, what do you see? Like one of the terms you used, I think, earlier in the interview and definitely in our call was sort of breaking outside the white cube. And, Mm -hmm. And I love that. I mean, that's something that really excites me about the digital art world as well. But um, but it's also a tenuous place. I mean, there's there's issues of ownership with digital artwork. There's a lot of disruption. Um, I think you really eloquently put it, the issue of scarcity versus ubiquity. I mean, mm-hmm. as as a working artist, what do you feel like digital art's place in the art world is? Well, 
since I've been involved with making work using digital tools for quite some time, and and actually, it's more than dig- just digital tools. I, I must say, I think I'm really involved with network culture and and yeah. culture at large. And I think when I began, it was definitely something. There was a divide that's often used. I don't want to use the word ghettoized. That has other uh, kind of meanings, but but it definitely there was a divide and. I have seen, particularly with a new generation of artists, digital artists, that they have found ways to kind of bring that work to the gallery. And I think one of the reasons is because we live in a digital age. It's, you know, IoT, the Internet of Things. Everything we do today involves computing. And so it's interesting that if I talk about it in a historic sense, so like 15 years ago, you know, (laughs) there was less acceptance of this work, particularly kind of in art fairs or in that fine arts context. And now it is finding its way into the white cube, but that can be problematic, as you were saying, because early on, particularly for a lot of net artists, the themes were about this being kind of democratic and outside of Hmm. those kind of capitalistic, you know, restrictions of the limited edition, the scarcity model that we know has kind of dominates the art world and, and, and the art market. Right. And I think artists who work with digital tools have found ways when they're working in a gallery context to limit their editions, for example, you know, or, Find, or work with uh, Hito Styles, you know, in defense of the poor image, to work with resolution differences. So something that they're putting online that is just free for anyone to look at, a GIF, is low resolution. But in a gallery context, they might show a 4K video that is a limited edition. And that's where you're kind of straddling that ubiquity and scarcity model. Yeah. Because there is a lot of kind of cultural capital today in artists sharing their works online. Right. And that is kind of the like economy. And so I think Mm. a lot of artists thrive in that economy, but that's not something that pays your rent. Right. And the gallery system, I think is evolving and I think it's trying to play catch up to the digital age. I happen to work with a gallery, transfer gallery here in New York, in Brooklyn, and a gallery in Berlin, and they support new media art practices. They support artists who basically are very much influenced by network culture. A lot of times their works begin online, but they provide these physical spaces for the instantiation of those ideas as as physical objects or Mm. half physical, half virtual. So all of that is really interesting because there are these new models that are emerging. Also, there are, for example, a transfer gallery, Kalani, has worked with different approaches in terms of these multiples and and setting these different kind of uh, false scarcity, you know, sometimes that false scarcity. Mm-hmm. And so she's also been looking at uh, blockchain and some of these other technologies, which could introduce a new kind of scarcity for an artwork. Yeah. 
And uh, so I find all of that fascinating. But I also just the spirit of, you know, why I got into this in the first place was because I was kind of bored also by this fine art model that was all kind of static. You know, you had to go to this physical place and there's oftentimes I remember going into particular galleries at that time in Chelsea where, you know, there you get these kind of disdainful glances, you know, because you're the art riffraff, you're not a collector. Right. And, and it was just such a, you know, it, it was such a stale environment. And, you know, yep. the idea of being able to share work with hundreds of thousands and millions on the internet, you know, the, yeah. the idea of, of letting your art disseminate across all of these different channels, because that's possible today is just so thrilling to me. And I think that that's a core part of kind of new media art that we should never kind of lose sight of. Hey, everybody, I'd like to pause the episode here for just one second, first and foremost, to give you guys our thanks. We're so appreciative that you guys like what we do and are listening. Uh, we really couldn't do it without you. We love making this podcast, but obviously, you have to be there for us to make it. If you're interested in helping us out a little bit more, if you want to go the extra mile, we would appreciate it so much. And there's two ways that you can help. The first, leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. This seems like a little thing. I know everybody's always asking you to do it, but it helps us so much. And more than anything else, it helps people like you find us. So if you find us interesting, other people hopefully do too. The second thing that you can do is let us know what you find interesting. Tell us what you want to hear. Please just reach out to us. Say anything to us. Find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at State of the Art. All right. Thanks so much. And back to the podcast. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's that's in large part why um, why I got into the business that I got into. And it's an interesting it, it you know, for the first time it, we have it's it feels like digital art has the ability to really disrupt um, an art market that, uh, you know, you can argue there's there's obviously debates for ages and ages on the topic, but you can argue that the art market tends to be in conflict with um, certainly the uh, the best interest of the artist. And, and even possibly you could go as far as to say is like antithetical to what the artist is trying to do in the first place. But, um, but it's an interesting thing because with that democratization, there is all these issues now of ownership. And, and like you said, I mean, the like economy doesn't pay the bills. And so right. um, it, it's going to be a really interesting transition to see if we can figure it out. I mean, I, I believe also from an entrepreneurial perspective, I believe that um, there it's a huge area of opportunity for someone to figure out how to democratize it in a way that can still generate revenue for, for the artist as well as, obviously whatever institution can do that um for the artist but it's it, it's a very interesting time to be around the art world because there's so much possible but still i don't think people have really cracked this nut yet so um yeah yeah i w i was going to interject that there are lots of online galleries for several years now that have been popping up and they all have different kind of distribution models yeah. and quite a few of them, you know, look to music or to, you know, other more populist forms, film, yeah. music, these kind of things where you don't have that same kind of exclusivity that 
that visual art historically has had. And I have experimented and worked with a few of these different platforms. And some of them are where, you know, you basically subscribe. And so you get a subscription to this artwork and, mm. and those kind of things. And, and I agree, though, people really haven't really figured out how to crack that nut. But it is exciting, yeah. you know, to be part of that, to be in flux. I mean, the one thing I think that is really different about this kind of practice or this genre is that we have to be really flexible and fluid and elastic, yeah. you know, because the the very technologies we're working with are always changing, but the systems that support them are also evolving. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, one of the things I like to tell friends and family who are outside of the, you know, the, the technology world or certainly Silicon Valley is I know that, tech is like this monolith can be intimidating but it it feels like it it feels like this massive just block that's immovable right and when you're more on the inside looking out you realize like there's real fragility to the system um yeah. there's real you know because if you're working on tools uh like as an artist right you have to be working through these tools that are end products but that sit on top of systems that like you said are always changing and evolving um, which means that your your tool is only as good as the support for that tool at some level and things like that. So um, yeah. it makes it a very dynamic sort of ecosystem to be around. So yeah, uh, but that's why it's fun. It's it's obviously you can tell it's a lot of fun for me to talk to to the artists who who actually use this stuff every day and are producing the content. Um, because that's 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 the meat and potatoes like that's where the spirit comes from and that's where the experimentation comes from so it's it's a it's an awesome experience to get to talk to you about that stuff um yeah go ahead sorry i didn't want to cut you off i was going to add something else when i was a kid i used to go with my grandfather to all these craft festivals and he'd set up a little booth and he, you know, have all of his different musical instruments on display to sell his wares. And my mother and I, you know, would sometimes be dressed up in kind of more traditional mountain wear, bonnets, <laughs> long dresses, singing mountain ballads. She played the dulcimer. And today when I go to art fairs, because I remember early on when I started going to art fairs and kind of, you know, trying actually to assimilate, right, to that, you know, this, this culture of like lots of money and sophistication is the art world. Yeah. I today when I go to art fairs, I think of them as like those craft fairs I used to go to as a kid. Yeah. You know, and if you can get yeah, like with my grandpa. And it's just like we're all I, I think artists anyway are most of us are so excited about just putting that stuff out there, getting it out of our head and finding yeah. like different outputs for it, you know? Yeah. And 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 so like the older I get, it's just like, keep that spirit alive. Keep that, you know, yeah. the thing that, you know, maintain that is what fuels you, right? Yeah, and yeah. it's it's funny, too, because, like, in those environments, there's, there's like, the that, like, excitement of the artist, and then there's, like, the weird plasticiness of, like, the collector scene. But what's funny is that, like, they're there because of that energy. Like, the collectors are there yeah. because, like, artists are fucking cool, right? Like... Art is cool, like regardless yeah. of if you even like it or not, it's undeniable that you know artists make culture and that they're they're interesting people and they have that energy and that that joie de vivre, right? And yeah. um, 
you know, that's that's what makes the whole ecosystem go around at the end of the day, even when sometimes the people with the money can make it feel like it's not an environment that's very welcoming for those people, you know, but yeah, you know, you're trading that, that, that energy for dollars at the end of the day, I guess. But, but so I I am curious, I mean, in this world, in the art world, where it is tough to sort of make your own way of it and, um, and, and succeed and get your artwork out there and get the, get the pins to fall your way. You know, you've clearly been successful, uh, in your own career. And I'm curious, especially you're a teacher. So you have a lot of people coming through your classroom and you influence a lot of people. What are your general words of advice for a working artist today in the digital art world? Okay. Um, Usually what I teach, my students would tell you this. I use a lot of words. <laughs> and I often <laughs> jump up and down in class and I, I, I can be a bit spastic <laughs> because I get really excited about the material and the practice. But one, the first one is being committed to your practice. And it can be really hard in a big city because there are so many things to distract you. Hmm. And you can make excuses like it's important for me to go there, there, it's research there, it's research is there, and I have my day job. But if you're not putting the hours in, in your studio, whatever your studio is, if your studio is your laptop on your bed, that's still your studio. Yeah. And that is, you know, that is a place you have to respect and a state of mind you have to respect. And you have to visit that space. Yeah. Often. And I recommend every day. Yeah. And and it's committing to that foremost, because for our students, particularly, I teach and I'm also the assistant chairperson for the Department of Digital Arts. And so our students are coming out of a BFA or MFA education with mad skills so mm. they can actually get jobs in the industry. Like when I finished with an MFA in painting, I was fortunate because I taught myself to database. So I got to come <laughs> to New York and have that job instead of being a weight person, right? Right, right? Or working, you know, as an art handler. But so, you know, my students, our students here in the department come out with mad skills. But what can be seductive about that is then you can kind of enter an industry and you're producing for someone else but you forget Mm. about your own voice. So that's something else that I think is very important is, is that that old model, that 19th century model, the artist in the garret with the one light bulb. No, you don't have to subscribe to that. Make a living, pay your rent, but don't get so seduced by, you know, the money you can make in commercial endeavors that, that you forget your own practice, the work that you did as a student, the, you know, that voice that you developed, hmm. that you can like continue to expand and yeah. strengthen. Yeah. yeah, that's it's funny. It doesn't matter what time you live in. It doesn't matter, you know, what what your tools are, what your medium is. Uh, there's never a replacement for discipline and hard work. Right. Practicing a little bit of restraint and and uh, putting in the hours that you need to put in. Yeah. And and and, you know, there are other aspects to it, too, because I think that particularly when I was studying painting, maybe this was more uh, and and maybe it was the time too, but it was more kind of a, a mindset, you know, 
oh, I'm, I'm the lone genius. And, you know, I'm not going to share my work. I'm not going to sell out. Like that's another side. Like there's the industry, you know, kind of seduction, but the other seduction is this myth or these various myths, you know, mm-hmm. where I'm, I'm a genius and I'm just going to put everything, you know, in a drawer or on a hard drive and right. people will find out later. Be famous no. when I'm dead. <laughs> yeah. I think that's selfish. And, yeah. and, and I don't, you know, you do have to have a healthy ego to be an artist. You don't have to be egomaniacal. I think you should always be generous. And I think particularly working with new media, it so much of it is about collaboration and generosity. But you do also need to share that work. This yeah. is this is communication. Yeah. So I think it is part of the generosity is in sharing the work while you're alive. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I I agree with that. I mean, if you if you're putting in the time you better believe that you have something to say, right? You, yeah, you better believe yeah. that it, it's worth having your voice heard. So have your voice heard. What else, you know, what are you doing it for if not that? Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, like I said, I know a lot of our listeners are working artists. So, um, so, so I appreciate that. I'm sure they'll appreciate that too, because that's always, it's good motivation to hear. Sometimes, you know, I, I really believe also that sometimes you just need to be reminded that, uh, that, it's not the process is not always difficult. Um, at least the rules of the process, right? It's it's difficult to get up every day and to put in the hard work and stuff like that. But people try to trick themselves into what the what the couple key things to success are, the little tricks that you can use to get there. And at the end of the day, the equation's very simple, right? It's <laughs> you gotta put in the time, you gotta believe that you're capable of getting there and and you gotta just work hard. <laughs> I, I I think that is it, and and also the equation is slightly different from for every person. Yeah, because it is not the same trajectory as putting together a resume, going for a job interview, getting the job. It right. is not linear. So the other thing is, you have to understand that you're going to take a road less traveled. You know, there are many artists today, you know, yeah. I mean, go on Instagram there, you know, everyone's an artist today, but, but still in terms of uh, an authentic art practice, the, the journey is going to be nonlinear, yeah. I would say. Yeah. It, it is not just the, I, I put together a resume, I succeed and I get the job. Yeah. And, 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 then, and then there are these kind of quantifiable things I receive yeah. from, you know, that work I put in. It's it's much more kind of nebulous. And, yeah. and I find all of that exciting. But there have been various times in my life where I was frustrated or no one was paying attention. And it's at those moments, though, that you have to, you know, continue withstand. You have to continue believing in yourself. Hmm. Yeah. Awesome words of wisdom, Carla. Thank you so much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so before I let you go, uh, we, we always do a thing on the show, the rapid fire questions to kind of oh, okay. wrap up the interview in a fun way. So um, so are you prepared mentally? Are you ready for this? Rapid fire oh, questions. So. Try oh to God. just fire back the first thing that comes okay, off the top of your head. All right. Okay. Oh, boy. <laughs> All right. So uh, – Obviously, you're an artist. You're a very creative person. Uh, but for us mere mortals who cannot create great artwork every day, what is the least creative thing you do on a day to day basis? 
I'm an assistant chairperson, so spreadsheets. <laughs> nice. Very nice. There's a lot of people that can relate to that, by the way. Okay. All right. What is your favorite guilty pleasure snack or food? What's your go-to? Rice cakes with mustard. Don't judge. Whoa. Rice cakes <laughs> with like flavored rice cakes or plain rice cakes with mustard? I like plain. I've been doing this since, yeah, my 20s. I, I love rice cakes with mustard. <laughs> That's, I'm not judging. That actually sounds strangely really good. I love mustard. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. If you won the lottery tomorrow, what's the first thing you would do? Invest in um, more equipment for my studio. I will say I am a digital hoarder. I have saved all my different computers and drives and all of these things nice. for many, many years. So what, yeah. What's your oldest computer? This is not rapid fire. I'm curious. What's your oldest piece of hardware? Oh my God. It's a, it, it's up in storage in Woodstock because storage is cheaper up there. So it's an old <laughs> PC, you know, from the nineties. Yeah. And, <laughs> nice. uh, and then I got zip drives. I've, I've got, you know, uh, three and a quarter discs, all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Where would you even go if you're trying to get something off a three and a quarter disc these days? I guess you got to well, pull I, out I an say, old drive. Yeah. I saved the towers. So I saved a bunch of towers, nice. but you know, who knows if they still, you know, hopefully they'll, they'll still operate. I save it all though. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a digital hoarder. I just actually confessed to that on air. Well. <laughs> all right. Last rapid fire question. If I open Spotify or whatever music you use, Apple music, whatever, what do you think is the last song that you played? Oh shoot. Can I just look? Yeah. <laughs> if you have it in front of you. Actually, I think I was listening to a Yeah, Yeah, Yeah song, Art Star. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> That's Hopefully it was to pump you up for the interview. <laughs> yeah, that was it. <laughs> awesome. Well, Carlo, thank you so much. This has been uh, a lot of fun. I love getting to talk to real working artists. Um, for anybody listening who wants to check out more of your work, where can they find you? Oh, CarlaGannis.com. So that's Carlo with a C. G-A-N-N-I-S. Nice. Thanks so much, Carla. This is a pleasure having you, and uh, I hope you have a great rest of the day. Thank you, Andrew. This is great. Bye. Right, bye-bye. As always, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The State of the Art. Uh, Carla, it was so much fun. Um, I love the, I just love her attitude. I love there's so much to learn from the journey that she's been on. And I think she's an inspiration for all artists and for all, uh, really anybody out there trying to make their way in the world and figure out how to get from point A to point B. So thank you so much to Carla. And if you'd like to learn more about her or see any more of her work, I really recommend there's some really interesting stuff. She's a digital artist. So there's a lot of stuff online. Uh, check out her website, carlaganis.com. That's C-A-R-L-A-G-A-N-N-I-S.com. And as always, uh, you know, if you like what we're doing, if you like this episode, um, if you like State of the Art, please tell your friends, rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, that's one of the most helpful things you can do. We would really appreciate any help. <laughs> Thanks as always, and I hope you'll tune in next time. This has been another episode of State of the Art. <laughs>